This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, we sit down with sports psychologist Brian Hemmings. He discusses the role of a sports psychologist and how it can aid athlete performance, the individualised approach and why it's important to understand an individual's playing style, as well as the differentiation between sports and some unique common threads. As always, if you enjoy this episode, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. So, Brian, I really appreciate you giving up a bit of time to talk to me today. Um, how are you? How are things? Are you all safe and well? Yeah, pretty good. Thanks, Michael. Um, good to be in the summer and see some of the restrictions being lifted. Um, so um, work has felt a bit more, I don't know, a bit more normal. I like, I enjoy the face-to-face work. Um, um, obviously, people have been working by Zoom a lot, which is uh, a necessity, but it's really nice to be working back face-to-face with people I really enjoy that yeah I think everyone uh, is at the point where zoom meetings were convenient for a bit but now probably at the stage where it's uh, you want to get in a room with people and be able to maybe have a cup of coffee or tea after and discuss stuff so uh, I'd agree with you on that front um first of all for me I really appreciate you obviously agreeing to do this you, you were someone that I kind of was looking online and trying to find topic areas that really I guess interested me and, and and things that I think would challenge maybe conventional thinking or things that, you know, could potentially educate me as well as hopefully some of the listeners. And you were one kind of my gold stars. I was like, actually, it'd be great to get him on to, to listen and hear about what you do. So for people that maybe haven't come across your work and what you do, could you just explain to us kind of what you normally do, what that entails, and I guess some of your experiences within that field? Okay. Um, well, I'm a, a sports psychologist. I'm I'm self-employed, um, a bit of career history. I um, uh, did an undergraduate degree, did a PhD and lectured in a un- in the university sector for about 10 to 12 years and then um, went self-employed as a practitioner in about 2006, I think it was. So I've um, worked as, a, as a, a private consultant for about 15 years now. Um, Initially, I worked in amateur boxing uh, as part of a, a sports science support program when sports science support in the UK was in its infancy, really. Um, that was in 1993, I think, through to 90, uh, through to 2000. So um, I did two Olympic cycles uh, and two Commonwealth Games cycles. Um, but then uh, I got invited to do to work with England Golf in the mid-90s and I ended up being league psychologist at England Golf for about 17 years. Um, so I've worked extensively in golf. I think if you were to search me on the internet, that's what the predominant um, amount of my um, profile would be linked to. But I've also worked in cricket since um, since um, the mid, mid to late 1990s. And the same in motorsport as well, across many different formulas. Um, so they're the sort of four principal sports I've worked in. Um, some of it has been at a team level, um, and other part, majority of the work has been in individually based. 
Perfect. I, give, I think it gives a really good overview in terms of some of your experiences, which I'm sure we'll we'll delve into a little bit later on. Um, for people that aren't necessarily familiar with this field, etc., can you just kind of give a broad aspect of where people sit in, in the spectrum of their personality types and maybe how that affects them, you know, it, from a day-to-day -day or on a sporting basis? I appreciate that's a very broad question, but give a bit of an yeah. overview would be great. What in terms of uh, sports psych sports psychology as a whole, you mean? As in, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you if you got like psychological profiles where people fit and then okay. how that fits in the sport. Okay, um, I, I'm not one who's typically um, um, done a lot of work in terms of psychological profiling, in terms of psychometrics. Um, I've, I've I've always found that they've been a little bit. Um, uh, I'm not. I'm, I'm not been entirely convinced by their usefulness. What I prefer to do is to sit down with an individual and talk to them and listen to them, and to get to know them and to get to know their their uh, the way they approach their sport, their their strengths, any areas of limitation, um, what their goals are, and and through that, it's it's a kind of a needs analysis in terms of how can I help? Because I'm I'm a, a strong believer in in an individual's uniqueness. Everyone's everyone's um, got different experiences. They've got um, uh, diff different individual characteristics, and they've all had a different journey to get to where they are. So I feel the most powerful way to get to know somebody is just just sit and listen to them and ask them questions about their development and what their aspirations are. Um, but in terms of sports psych, I guess uh, there's, there's, there's two aspects of it. I think people generally think about sports psychology and they think about content issues is, you know, um, what do you say to people? Um, but, but I believe sports psychology is, 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 has two aspects to it. It's One is content, is, is what you say or what you don't say and how you say it. Um, and there's plenty of... Um, knowledge about various psychological interventions which can improve performance or uh, uh, improve someone's well-being or mental health but intrinsically linked to that is the process and people don't often um, take notice of that because there's quite a fair amount of research that suggests that the impact of sports psych psychologists is is predominantly through the professional relationship so the relationship that was formed with an athlete is is integral to uh, the success of any intervention that that you might use. So sports psych for me is about content and process, and those two are very much linked. Um, and I, and I guess I guess sports psych to me there's some central pillars to it, which I think when I work with people or teams, it often comes back to these central central principles and that's controllability what you can control what you can't control in in a sporting environment and um about process about people are interested in results and outcomes but we don't have control over those and what we do have control over is is the process of performance and how we prepare for that so i guess the, the the majority of my work is around those two aspects um building on what someone can control making them aware of that 
and putting their energies into those things, recognizing what things they can't control. And also about, which is linked to that, which is about um, refining one's process or being really aware of how, what is your method of trying to be successful. It doesn't guarantee success, but if you if you stick to your process, it's it's more that it's giving yourself the best chance of success over time. So obviously, one of the things you you've alluded to earlier is that you obviously got quite a heavy golf background. So if if we take a golfer as an example, and they've reached out to you to say, listen, I think that I could do with some support within this area. I think is something that would benefit me um, holistically. What would be kind of the process you would go through through that initial? I guess, first week, first month, et cetera, to, I guess, get to know them, but then also to try and lay these processes and the foundations in place for them? It's a good question, Michael. It's and it's a classic one, which is the answer is it depends because it often depends on what what issue they're presenting to you. Some people can present with a performance problem Others may come to you in a developmental sense where they say, well, actually, there's nothing wrong, but I'm I'm just in, in, interested to explore this area to see if it offers me a way of improving what I do. So, for instance, I, I could have somebody come and immediately or via email or phone, they'll say, look, I've, I've really got a problem with my putting at the moment. And maybe the putting is I, I keep missing short putts. And it's costing me because you know I'm, I'm I'm dropping shots and I'm missing cuts and whatever. So, in in that sense, then I I probably wouldn't sit down with a player very much. I'd be straight out on a putting green, working on what you know what's their process over short parts, and is their process contributing to the the the, the performance decrement. So. Um, in, in, in that example, I do a lot of work on something called quiet eye, um, which is about where where individuals gaze, how they how they direct their gaze over the ball and through the duration of the stroke. And experience has shown me over many many years that that when players miss putts or they start to lack confidence over putts, they start looking for the outcome before they've even finished their stroke. So they come up out of the ball because they're anxious to see if the ball's going in. And that contributes to the miss because they make poor contact on the ball and so on. So in, in that sense, I work in a very practical way in terms of guiding where they look on the ball and for how long to try and keep their eyes quiet and still uh, for, through the execution of the stroke. Um, an alternative may be, uh, let's say an example of a golfer I, I, I met for the first time a couple of weeks ago um, um, and is a, a, a recently turned professional was underperforming and could see that his uh, certain behaviors um, uh, in his in, in some of his tournaments were weren't helping and were contributing to his his lack of success and, and in, in, in terms of conversation over about 90 minutes what what we what we worked on together and it's very much I work with from a, a cognitive behavioral perspective and that basically means it's the interaction of how someone thinks and how they behave 
and what what we identified was he he was concerned about failure and that meant he was becoming more cautious in his approach when he was naturally quite an aggressive player and so in trying to be cautious he was actually becoming more tentative and then and then ironically then was dropping more shots in trying to be cautious so he was moving away from what was his normal game he he was trying to make a transition into the professional game and he was moving away from his strengths and that became more and more apparent as we talked and then we worked on various strategies which would which would say well okay i can't guarantee i'm going to be successful but if i'm going to be successful i've got to go back to my process which is the one that's likely to to give me the results i want and there's a risk in that i i think that's really fascinating so in terms of that initial interaction with him is that is it an open question from you is kind of like describe yourself as a golfer no it, 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 it isn't really it was more just talk to me about what's happening now you know I, I get a bit of background information on people in terms of you know their their age how long they've been playing some historical information what their performances have been like um uh, their levels of achievement and then say okay well because my approach is very much based on the now so it's okay well tell me what's going on what's going on for you and through the process of of of, of discussion and collaboration you arrive you um what you know one of the main skills of a sports psychologist is we're trying to listen probably listen better than mo many other people they would have experienced in their uh, performers would have experienced in their lives so through that list through that listening it enables the performer to um or the athlete to to to, to come to realizations about what they're doing which might have otherwise they might not have been consciously aware of so do you feel like most athletes using this as an example most athletes have an awareness of what decisions they're making so for him he he would have made he has an awareness of the fact that he's being more conservative rather than playing his natural game and then it's just kind of you to unpick that and get him to actually almost say it out loud and say, yeah, I'm making the decision to not be as aggressive as I naturally would be. Yes, uh, you, you, it's a good point, Mike. I think in that, it's, in that situation, he'd been told by his coach and by a, a, a fellow player of his who was a good friend that they'd noticed that he, 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 he acted differently in tournaments. And they were seeing that his that that the for instance power fives in 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 practice and and the, and then when he was an amateur he 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 had length off the tee he could generally go for par fives in two he wouldn't lay up to and yet in 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 professional the professional tournaments he was playing in he was typically typically being overly conservative and laying up so it was very clear that I'm starting to behave differently. And so what you want to do is unpick well what's the process going on behind that and to get help him start to think about that in a different way so to, pre to present a different narrative to him that might be more helpful that might be more helpful for in terms of his performance 
And does that look at Matt, I guess, for him, you're then looking at managing his risk and reward element of a golf shot. So if he, you know, if he could go for the green in two, it's like, well, actually, what's the percentage likelihood of me being able to hit this? If it's one out of 100, then that probably isn't worth the reward. Where actually, if I was doing this out of tournament, 70 times out of 100, I'd be able to hit this green. Is it is it kind of going through that narrative in his head where he's trying to provide clarity around the decision that he's then going to make? Yeah, I think it, in, in that in this example we're talking about, it is. It's about, it is about risk and reward. But he thought he was minimising risk when actually in, in trying to minimise risk, he was losing out even more because yeah. he was moving away from the very strength. And I think, in, and you must remember in the professional game, he'd be up against players who are willing to take that risk. And if you want to be successful, particularly in professional golf, that's what people do. And if you don't do that, you're not even going to give yourself the chance of being successful. Now, I, I think that's fascinating. I think that you can, obviously, with golf as well, because you've got that period between shots where you're walking from shot to shot, you can almost, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you could talk yourself in or out of situations as you're going around the course. So that narrative that you're discussing and having to manage that is probably quite an integral part of the sport. Yeah, very true. I mean, I think part of being a sports psychologist is understanding the, the psychological demands of each sport that you work in. So I gave you the examples I worked in. You can see that that boxing is has very different psychological demands from golf. Golf has very different psychological demands from motorsport. There's sometimes some similarities between golf and cricket in terms of um there's some aspects that are it's a self-paced activity but yeah I mean golf I think uh, it's an interesting sport to work in because there's a there's a whole library of books on 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 sports on sports like that have been there for many years I, I bought a book at auction on the internet um, called uh, golf and the brain and it was published in 1923 you know so there's uh, if you if you watch golf on telly they often comment on players working with sports psychologists so it's a sport that's um that um has embraced psychology and psychologists for many many years and i think that's because of the nature of it is it's you're on the course for five hours in the professional game that's lots of thinking time um to think about what you might have done before in terms of mistakes but also in terms of thinking ahead and I guess there's that cliche in sport about trying to stay in the present moment and that's what golfers strive to do but the nature of the game psychologically tries to drag you out of that. And for that obviously it's going to be very challenging for an ind individual to stay focused over four or five hours do you encourage the players you work with to almost have a switch where they can turn it on and off or, or do you look for them to manage kind of the arousal around the, around how how does that work? What what does that look like? Yeah, it, it's it, there's there's kind of there's kind of two questions there. Of course, regulating someone's arousal level is going to be important for for players. And rather than um, thinking of attention being something you switch on and off, although players do like that. Um, analogy of a switch i termed i sort of think of attention as on a, a sort of a continuum as is it's you're always attending to something 
it just depends is, is trying to equip with the right skills that you're you're attending or focusing on the right things at the right time so rather than this i switch on and switch off it's that i guess that's what per, um, pre-shot routines are helpful for are to bring attention to the task in the present moment and the execution of that and not thinking in ways that would um would disrupt the disrupt the movement okay so yeah I, th I think that's really interesting i guess something that this is making me question is that kind of caddy golfer relationship because if we are talking about trying to keep someone you know in that flow state or we're, we're looking at trying to get someone um to manage risk and reward they could imagine play quite an integral part in that and almost be a sounding board to say this is what we see in practice or this is what i've seen you do before and if you can their role can be to try and stay relatively calm relatively emotionless and present the players almost with facts rather than you know you're on the 18th if you get this putt and you're going to win the major the, the caddy can play quite an integral part i'd imagine imagine in this yeah very true and um, there's not many sports where you have somebody there who's potentially giving you information live information during the course of what you do um so there's plenty of examples of caddies uh, sorry of players who've had you know quite long relationships with players and, and what it comes what comes across in those relationships is that they're very trusted and they do they, they're they're integral in decision making and knowing when to speak to players knowing when to calm them calm them down what to say what their triggers are um uh but on on the on the con the, the the flip side of that you get players and the the the, the caddies are essentially bad carriers you know so uh, I, th I think every, again it's every uh, uh if, if you if you go into ca uh, player caddy relationships each one is each one is different in terms of the closest of the relationship and what information the player wants from the caddy um there's been you know i've worked with plenty of players where the the, the caddies have been as have been really really important in delivering psychological messages whilst they're playing in in terms of helping a player manage their arousal making sure that they make not not making emotion-based decisions and their clear decisions based on this is what's required in this situation um i worked with one player um um uh ended up being a major winner but i worked with him early in, i worked with him through his amateur career and in his uh, early in his professional career and i remember his coach saying to me that when this player dropped shots he would he would then take on what he called a very aggressive course management so he'd go for shots more because he was over aroused and of course all he did was compound errors and make more and more mistakes and so a key thing with him was with working as a player was to try and regulate that but also the caddy was really really important in in terms of being firm with him at those points that if you dropped a shot it didn't need to be this then charge in terms of trying to get shots back it was to be a more measured you know there was plenty of holes to come a more measured um strategic approach 
so how do you work with an individual on that because that is almost a form of self-sabotage isn't it it's like if i've dropped a couple of shots i'm going to make them up on the next one which all of a sudden leads into three or four holes and now you're in a black hole almost so how do you go around i guess one helping the player identify this type of behavior and then two help them understand that in stressful or stresses uh, stressful situations that this is what they are doing so therefore to maybe take a second thought around that area well the first thing the first thing is is developing a player's awareness of that and they might as i said earlier they may already be aware of that and awareness might be in terms of performance statistics which show perhaps after uh, bogeying a hole they're more likely to bogey x amount of holes afterwards my approach then would be in terms of what's their thinking trying to help collaborate with them and, and work out what is their thinking process there and is and how is it helping or hindering what's happening next in this particular example <clears throat> in this specific that particular example rather then it was um a, a breathing technique in terms of when they felt themselves being becoming over aroused it was a a, a simple breathing technique in in, in terms of regulating one's breath to decrease physiological arousal and then with a decrease in physiological arousal you leave the individual better place to have more clarity in their thinking um, um, something i've used a lot as well are grounding grounding techniques in terms of present moment and so in terms of using your using your vision using your kinesthetic sense or your body or auditory sense in terms of hearing, in terms of using those senses to place yourself in the present moment, rather than thinking ahead or, or in the past. Um, so they're the kind of strategies that that I'd use in terms of helping a a player in that in in that instance. So, um, this might be a really basic level. Is that the kind of similar? I've seen someone have like elastic bands, or I think the all backs play with a little bit of tape on their wrists or stuff. Is that similar? Trying to ground them rather than letting the mind kind of wander off. Yeah, letting ground Again, them in that moment. Yeah, I think uh, there's been examples of kickers in rugby using rubber bands, or sometimes. Um, if they miss a kick, remove the mud from their boot and throw it away as a way of kind of saying that's gone. So they're just, I kind of, um, um, uh, I, I guess, uh, I guess post shot, post kick behaviors as a way of saying to yourself, that's gone. I'm back in the moment. Um, and of course, players rehearse those things get used to them and then meet as long as it's meaningful to them that, that they can work i mean i've worked with even um things like um golfers when they walk off the green if they've dropped a shot even you know i work players and, and they walk more quickly behaviorally they more, walk more quickly to come and say i want to get on with it and actually what they learn is actually it's better to slow themselves down so even just things like with a golfer it will be walking off to see <laughs> grabbing a drink and stopping and grabbing a drink. I worked with a player once who used to walk off the green, bend down and untie his shoelace and then tie his shoelace again. Just to, again, to as a way of that's my mechanism. I've got this window of time. 
how am I going to use this window of time to refocus and to leave that past behind me and get that focused on the now? And so just to buy themselves that little bit of time. And of course, golf being the nature of the sport it is, it, it affords you the time to do that. Other sports don't. Yeah. In terms of, uh, I guess, stresses for players at the top end. So, I mean, there's quite a lot of high profile examples. Thomas Bjorn was one a few years ago where, you know, they're ahead. They're going into the 17th, 18th tee. It's a pressurised situation because maybe it's their first major or it's an unexpected winner. And then all of a sudden, off the tee, they hook one into the trees. And then out of the trees, they end up in a bunker or, or whatever that looks like. How, I, I guess the first question is, with players we, that you've worked with before, have you had any examples of this that you've then gone back and helped them correct it moving forward? And I guess the next question off the back of that, if you haven't, is in your, I guess, professional opinion, what would you do to support a player right in that moment to kind of correct the behaviour after that first maybe initial dip or how can you prepare them so they don't have that dip? Yeah. I don't think you can prepare anybody that they don't have that. All you can do is try and reduce the chances of you know, um, a, 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 you know, a, a error, errors under pressure. Um, I, I've always been a believer that you know you watch people in a in a in a pressure situation, what what perceived to be a pressure situation, and if they don't perform well, you hear commentators say this, in, in the press would say this, and it's deemed to be that they didn't handle pressure well, or they choked, or whatever it is. My experience is you you can never really know. A player can say and pressure, you know, actually I felt I felt all right. I felt actually in control. I just did a bad shot. So that people can, can jump to the conclusion that someone hasn't managed the situation well when the reality is sport being sport, sometimes things just don't happen. You know, I mean I, I guess um you know the the Euro 2020, the final we just missed. We just seen England miss some penalties. Is you know is that because they didn't perform well under pressure, or is it simply that they just didn't execute at that point? You know, um, you, you saw Jorginho uh, score a penalty. You know, in his typical style in the semi final, and saw him miss uh, in the final. Did it mean he didn't perform under pressure? No, just sometimes in sport. Things don't go our way. That's the that's why we love sport. I think is 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 the unpredictability of it. You'd have to ask the players themselves whether they felt they didn't manage the situation well in, in terms. But from for me, looking at that as an example, is there's been a fair amount of research done by um, Guise or Day here on penalty taking in football for many years, looking at behaviours and what what wins successful you know, what are successful penalty shootouts. And you could clearly see that England have learned some of the lessons of, of those things in terms of what, what one thing in particular was the, the, the dwell of time between the referee blowing the whistle and the person then starting the penalty kick. And you saw England players really dwell for, for, for probably up to about two seconds before, two and a half seconds before they actually started the movement into the ball. 
Whereas if you watch penalties in years gone by, you'd have seen as soon as the referee blew the whistle, the player was in, almost rushing. So, you know, it's a, it would be, I don't always, well, I never jump to the conclusion about if someone didn't manage pressure until you've actually spoken to them. But Michael, I've, I've kind of gone off a bit of a tangent there and I'm not sure I'm answering your question. No, that's fine. I, I think it's really interesting. So the Euros thing for me is if the keeper had gone the other way and they both and Sancho and Saka had scored, they would have gone, what great penalties. Yeah. But that yeah, narrative completely it's... changes. I think the problem is you don't you people at times don't place emphasis on the fact that you have got someone trying to stop you complete that action. And the yeah. ultimate outcome, you could do everything pretty much right. And because the keeper's made a good save, Jorginho is a perfect example. Normal routine was 100%. With probably going in the side netting, Pitford just made a very good save. Um, I think that's interesting. But that research that you, you uh, mentioned there, I actually saw this morning when I was scrolling through a bit. And I thought it was really interesting. I think one of the things he highlighted in the Euro emphasis was that Players that I think took 0.6 seconds or less from the referee's whistle um, had a quite high proportion of misses within the Euros. Um, and he, I think he alluded that to kind of, I'm butchering the phrasing of this, but the panic of wanting it to be over, wanting that yeah, pressure yeah. situation to be done and dealt with, so I'm just going to do it straight away. Whereas those who took more time prolonged were more successful. Um, you can probably delve into the technical side of that research far better than me, but am I relatively accurate in that kind of Yeah, aspect? yeah, very much so. And so England, I think, did those things right. You know, it looked in terms of uh, of the process of preparing to take a penalty. It looked like those they got those things right. Again, one thing I've learned over my career, I think, is you've got to be inside inside that situation to know what's going on you, you know of course psychologists make uh, you know we're, we're trained to make observations on behaviors and so on but you really don't know what's happening inside a circle of performance unless you're in it unless you're talking to the performers unless you're seeing how they train so in that example why that, that those certain penalty takers were chosen and in the order that's been based on an extensive amount of analysis and practice over a long period of time, which we're not party to. You know, so from the outset, then it's easy then to pick apart, or oh, they should have done this, or they should have done that. But actually, unless we know um, how Saka generally takes penalties, how Rashford does, how Sancho does. We don't really know if they erred from what's their normal routine. And of course, you had the example of Kane in in the uh, in the semi-final. What was relative, quite a relatively poor penalty, I think he'd say by his own standards, and yet scored in the shootout. So there's the, there's the human element of it. And then would you say, well, Kane Kane um, psychologically did something wrong in in the semi-final? No, of course he. I don't think he did. He just he just didn't execute it very particularly well. That, that's sport. That's sport sometimes. It's, and that's why I think that's why sport grips us is, is the unpredictability of it is, is what makes it so exciting. 
Um, and of course, I guess itself as coaches or psychologists, what we're trying to do is is trying to make it as as, as certain as you can do. But at the end of the day, we don't work with robots. We work with human beings. And human, I think there was a quote, you, you mentioned Thomas Bjorn earlier. Uh, oh no, it wasn't Thomas Bjorn. I think it was, um, it was Eddie Jones, the rugby union coach. Talk, he went and met Alex Ferguson and he said, uh, and they were having a chat and he said something he said is, you know, but, but essentially we're human beings. Um, if we knew all the answers, everyone would have a 100% record. Yeah. And of course, we'll never know one because not everyone can have a 100% record. So when you work with human beings, we're fallible. And like you've said, is, is in that particular example, you're, you have an opponent who's also trying to uh, excel in their own performance. So um, I, I don't overplay psychology. We know psychology, the, 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 the psychology of performance is is important and i think the very best people are exceptional in terms of how they manage their own thinking and behaviors under you know uh, you know for for career you know it sometimes still amazes me how people can sustain their levels of performance over many many years at, uh, at the top level is is incredible in terms of the transitions they're making as people um in terms of they have their own personal lives as well and, and that they maintain the the, the 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 standards they do i find sometimes it's in, incredible when you work with people like that do, do you find that a particular type of athlete acts more commonly in a certain way so if i look at tennis player nick kyrgios for example i watched a, a documentary which discussed like your uber talented players can at times get frustrated um, because things aren't going well and then go down kind of self-sabotage route um yeah. do you find that in your experiences that has been the case where certain types of athletes go there or is it a very individualized thing and just depends on the person's experiences i think it depends on the person's experiences i've worked with some people that actually if you weren't working with them you wouldn't choose to spend a lot of time around with them because they're actually quite not very nice people but they're still excellent at what they do and and, and there's a kind of a ruthlessness to them but they're also happy to tread on anybody else around them to um, achieve what they want to achieve. And they can be quite manipulative and quite, quite difficult individuals. Um, and especially when you're working in a team environment, of course, that can be having an effect on people around them. But on the other hand, I've worked with some people and you think, you know, they're ter just terrific people, full stop, um, in still incredibly driven still hard on themselves but um not ones to self-sabotage i think at the very very top i've always felt um and this is probably this is obvious is is that and and psychologists have talked about this for many years is there's some pathological elements to it is actually where where the people are obsessional and actually quite difficult to quite difficult to be around because that level of obsession is is almost necessary to hit to, to 
to train the way they do and to perform in the environments they have to and at the levels they have to it, it, it sometimes requires some some behaviors which in the general population we'd 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 we'd, we'd probably find um, a bit unedifying do you th i think that's really interesting i look at i don't know if you saw it the last uh, last dance with michael jordan Yes, I did. Yeah, I, I feel like that's like a perfect example of what you're discussing there in terms of individual that actually for teammates and coaches and potentially family and stuff at points, he was very difficult to be around. But there's a level of sporting excellence, which very few will ever attain. Yeah, I think I think you're, that's a really good example. I think I can't remember all of that, all of those. Um, all of that series but I remember watching it and thinking that very thing is that he would have been quite difficult to be around much of the time um, and I guess looking at that team there were there was more than what more than him that was quite difficult to be around at that time um, um, I think um, what what Phil Jackson did was very very good in terms of managing all those personalities and all those differing um uh, i'm trying to find the right word find those that uh, those differing um differing needs and, and molding them into something that was that was in in intent on multiple successes i think that's always the hardest thing isn't it is, is you win something but it's to repeat that is incredibly difficult to maintain that intensity and so to, to do it in the way they did i thought was a was an, an, an that, that, that offered an incredible insight into that i think i think what you've said there is really interesting if you look at some of the the best managers kind of known across across sport either modern day or, or going historically one thing that gets attributed to a lot of them is their man management skills. It's the way that they've dealt with the, the people or dealt with the difficult characters well and, and, and whatnot. Um, how do you go about, how do you think as a practitioner, so if, if, you, if I was coming to you as a coach saying, listen, I want to get better at understanding people. I want to get better at managing these people. How would you support me to do that? Is there a way to if support I'm, the practitioner to do that? Well, well if I'm going to support you to do, I guess you could use me in a number of ways. Is one is I work with you and you alone, and say, okay, what is it about these characters that you're finding difficult? In, in terms of helping you as a manager, to what are some ways of managing maybe challenging behaviours, um, discipline, um, communication. Uh, with 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 each with each different individual, or you can task me to work with the players themselves in terms of um, working more directly in terms of uh, managing managing some of the things that might be needed to make the team be effective. Uh, so I guess those 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 are the those are the two ways. Um, so if you looked at it in terms of ma like managing me, so we're working together and I'm saying to you, um, 
let's look at that Chicago Bulls team. That's a perfect example. You've got Michael Jordan, who's massively driven, quite, you know, full on, quite demanding of his teammates. You've got Scottie Pippen, who's a bit more chilled out, but wants a massive contract. And then you've got Dennis Rodman, who might turn up or he might go to Las Vegas. And at times I've got to give him that opportunity to blow off steam along with a load of other players that kind of, kind of want to be in that. And I'm saying to you, I find it really difficult to know how to manage Dennis when he needs to go off and to put up with the alpha of Michael Jordan. What processes could I get put in place or what things could you do? This is the creme de la creme because this is one of the hardest examples ever. But what could we talk through or what could we discuss to potentially prepare me better to do that? What comes to my mind is it would be sitting with you and working out what's the pros and cons of uh, of what are the pros and cons of whatever decisions you make regarding that player. So in terms of, let's say, disciplining, if it was the Dennis Rodman thing, what's the pros and cons of letting him go and blow off steam? What's the pros for him? What are the cons for the team in doing that? And you're not always going to get consensus with everybody about decisions you make. But I think you, you... help a, uh, a coach make as an informed decision as they can in terms of, right, I've thought through all the pros and cons of what's, what's what I'm deciding and this seems to be the best way forward. I think, in, you know, in sometimes in sport, and I've heard this said a lot in, in football management and, and certainly in Ryder Cup, captaincy is if you win you're deemed to be a hero and it means every decision you got right if you lose you're an abject failure and a captain or you know a poor coach and the reality is there's so many things that go into the complexity of sport and there's so many variables that come together it's very simplistic to say, well, it was that decision that that's that's what that's what brought the success. When in reality, is um, there's a the, the, it it could have been the wrong decision, but actually the other variables came into play that made you still got the outcome you want. I don't know if I've I've got yeah, that no, you very have. clearly. No, you have. I it, think linking to something that you'll probably know really well. The miracle in Medina springs to mind straight away where the American captain for three days, you could say, pretty much made every right decision. They're ahead by a tremendous amount. And then all of a sudden, just a couple of games swing on the last day, a little bit of momentum, a little bit of atmosphere. And then all of a sudden, they've lost the entire Ryder Cup. And you can say, oh, I can't believe that he's lost it. Where actually his decision-making potentially the whole way through could have been spot on. And it was just a case of 
a freak event yeah. where people hit we, the well, we know we we know in sport something like momentum is huge you know positive momentum can you know you can be making right decisions but if you know there's momentum against you and that's very difficult to stop you know because like you say it's competition it's a competition between brilliant players playing each other um and like i said in that that earlier quote about eddie jones and alex ferguson is is that we haven't got all the answers no one's ever going to have all the answers because if we did everyone would have 100 record and that's not going to happen so yeah i think some decisions you're going to make might suit certain players not suit certain players um in 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 Ryder Cup, for example, in terms of pairings, um, but nothing's foolproof. Would um, you say for the Ryder Cup when they're in pairings, considering how they interact, yeah, they, I mean, is co- important? Would you say that that's an yeah, important part? Yeah, captains would always be doing that. They'll be asking players, you know, is there anybody you, you want to play with? Is there isn't anybody you don't want to play with? Um, and listen, there's been examples in teams where people have intensely disliked each other. It doesn't mean that then that's going to be, a, you know, those, those, you know, players, if they're big enough at the time, they park the problems. They're not going to be best of mates, but they come together for a common purpose. So, you know, this idea that it all has to be a sort of a happy camp and everyone getting on fine, that might be a, a great environment to work in but i think often in a high pressure example people that that's my experience is is that's not that's not usually the case is there is tension between individuals um and it is it, part of managing tension but still keeping people going towards that common goal of of trying to trying to win um yeah so i think that, that you know having worked in golf um at a, a national level and, and and work with players who've gone on to work in Ryder Cups there's there's nothing magical about pairings is some pairings work and they get a they get a sense of momentum in themselves in terms of confidence in each other of getting results of course that's really really important um players who have similar styles um uh, or a similar a similar rapport enjoy playing to one um but there's 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 i think if you interview captains they'd say there's there's no there's nothing magical there's a common process and then it just comes down to on the day do putts drop yeah okay last question i'm going to shift this onto the boxing side because i feel like in my opinion anyway boxing and mma etc sit a little bit outside in terms of psychology etc I, I could be wrong but when you're looking at potentially in a Ryder Cup and you, you a player sees on the morning that they, they're playing against Tiger Woods who in his heyday one of the best golfers ever ever to have played the game now I appreciate he didn't have the best of records in, during the Ryder Cup but in terms of supporting a player to try and I guess flip that narrative of going oh no I can't believe I've got Tiger to go and actually this is a really good opportunity for me to be up against the best. How do you or how can you support a player to do that? Yeah. Um, 
Well, I think one of the central, you know, talk about sports site, one of the main things, particularly in something like golf, is it all you've got an opponent. But I remember as a one, as I did a book many years ago, and one player who was interviewed said, you know, golf's the opponent can't do anything to you unless you let them. They can't run up and kick you in the shin. They can't tread on your ball. They can't do anything. So golf is a game where all you can do is focus on yourself. And so I guess in preparing a player for that, there's one, there's two aspects of it. Is again, is what is your normal process? So if you're going to have your best chance against beating this guy, what would you do? So um, actually, I mean, this is, this is a, a guy who beat Tiger Woods in the Walker Cup as an amateur when Woods had already won um, you know, broken many um, amateur records. He played him in the Ryder Cup and Woods was out driving him by up to 100 yards. And and he beat Woods, um, I think he beat him one up. You know, so, but what he did was he recognised that I can only play my own game. You know, there's no point me trying to hit the ball further now because if I do, I'm moving away from what are my strengths. If I'm going to beat him, it will have to be, I'm going to have to be very, very good at what I do. And sometimes, and this is sport, is, is, is hope that that other player underperforms a little. Or doesn't hold parts or whatever it may be. So I think what you're trying to do with that individual is get them to focus on themselves. Uh, focus again, and that, this is, these are basics to me, but focus on what you can control and focus on your process. And if you do that, you're going to give yourself the best chance of success. And if you don't win, you'll walk off that last green, whatever it may be, feeling, well, I, I, I gave it a go. And I guess there's, there's, there's literature now, Michael, in terms of challenge and threat. So do we, do we perceive situations as being challenging and therefore facilitative and there's physiological changes that go with that? Or do we tend to see, if we see something as a threat to us, then there's negative physiological changes. So what you're trying to do with a player is to see something as more of a challenge rather than as a threat. It is a little bit more complex than that, but generally trying to help athletes see situations as challenging. And yeah, it's challenging. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it, but it's I'm going to give it a go versus it's a threat and what are, what are the consequences of this and just to, just to say a little bit about consequences i work with a lot of people over a lot of time and they're worried about failure and why they underperform is because they're worried about failure but what becomes apparent is they're not worried about losing they're worried about the consequences of losing so in a golf in a a golfing example, I talked about the, the young professional. He's worried that he won't retain his card. And if I don't retain my card, crikey, well, I'm going to be on some minor tour. How am I going to afford to do that? And if I can't afford to do that, um, where am I going to get my money from? And if I don't get my money, crikey, I'm not going to be able to carry And there's a whole list of consequences that somebody then can start fearing. And so often I found my my role as a sports psychologist is to is to help them make sense of what the consequences are and actually the consequences today today only is 
you didn't play well or you didn't win. That's all there is. And I found that the best people I've worked with are very clear on that is, is that all I've done today is lost. Almost drown out the background noise of what could be and just focus on I win or lose today and it is what it is at That's, the end of it. Is it, it is, is, and I think, you know, again, just to come back a little bit to the football because it's in the, in, 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 because it's just happened, but Rashford's um, um, message that he put out, and he's basically saying that. He's saying, look, I'm really sorry. I, 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 I screwed up on the penalty. I, I really apologise. I've let people down. But actually, I'm proud of who I am, and that's not changed anything. There's no, you know, that's happened. I'm still going to play another match. Yeah. And, and, and quite, quite, quite grounded. And I think the people who get into difficulty psychologically, in my experience, we're, we're talking about professionals, then either being golf, cricket, is they start to fear, they don't fear failure, they fear the consequences of failure. And it's helping people make sense of what are those consequences and often they're scared about consequences which might and this sounds ridiculous but they might be three years down the line you know it's like the worst case scenario and that's three years down the line you're thinking well actually yeah but this is july 2021 and you're playing in a pro tournament it's got what's that's got nothing to do with so it's helping people um rationalize and bring them back to the bring them back to the now and what they've got control over and the process so it's helping them somebody said once gave me an example which i thought was really good is, is, is a washing machine and when you see a washing machine in cycle and everything's just swirling around swirling around and he said sometimes a psychologist's job is just to get to that point in the cycle where everything just sinks to the bottom and stays still yeah, and I thought a really that was a really, nice really, really nice good analogy. Is that everything's just still right now? I'm just in this moment. I'm just going to do what I'm going to do today, and and that and that's it. No, that's that's a really nice analogy. Just um, linking back to something you said, the physiological changes that take place between a challenge and a threat. Do you know what? they are could you go through those for us if someone perceives the difference between a challenge and a threat uh, it's most basic is there's some cardiovascular changes in terms of um output and also constriction i think it's like constriction of um uh blood vessels to the to certain working muscles that's a very a very basic level um so there are there are some physiological changes that, sh that that have been linked that when we see things as a threat, there there are adverse um, psychophysiological changes. No, I, th I think that's interesting. I'd be interested to see how in high stressful games such as the Euros or World Cup finals, whether that would then lead to increased fatigue, you know, physiological and I guess mental fatigue. But does that increase the level in which you fatigue because you're perceiving things more as a threat than a challenge because this is the biggest thing you ever wanted or how that looked. It'd be interesting yeah. to see whether that affected it at all. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure if there is research on that. I mean, you say that intuitively, you would say that if someone's in a highly stressed state, they might fatigue more quickly. Yeah. Um, 
but I'm not I'm not sure of what research is out there in 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 that regard. No, that, 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 that's fine. Uh, observation. It'd be good to, as you said, do a bit of research on it. So just moving on to boxing, obviously you said that you've done a little bit of work within that area. And the reason earlier on I said it's a little bit different is because I feel like in those contact sports, there are some very inherent, you know, possible physical consequences to things not going well or going right. So is there a difference between the athletes from what you've seen and how do you manage individuals when essentially they are going into rings or going into octagons, et cetera, where there is going to be physical punishment for them? And obviously, again, it comes yeah. down to that r the risk within, within the sport. Well, first of all, I'd say, Michael, it's been a long time since I've worked in that sport. So I wouldn't say, you know, I mean, I stopped working in that sport in 2000. So that's, you know, nice 20 years ago. ago. So, uh, yeah, uh, it, so it seems a long, but if I were to recall some of that, I would say, you know, this is their sport and this is what they've grown up doing. So In, in essence, the, the, the psychological preparation, as I recall, didn't really seem a lot different. Yes, there was the chance of physical harm, but I, I, I never got the sense that people were going out ever to harm somebody. They're going out to win a contest. So the main things that I remember some boxer would say, if you were knocked down, it was the it would be the humiliation of it. It would be more of a sense of humiliation in in in, in a physical contact. But, but more generally speaking, I would say that the processes were the same. Is is it was a boxer goes out to box like a footballer goes out to play football. There's no there's no more sense of. I didn't get a sense, and and working with the boxers, that there was a a greater fear element. In any sense, it was more because you remember that they're preparing themselves for that daily in terms of how they train. They're, spar they're doing close sparring. They're doing open sparring. So they're used to getting hit. So yeah. for me, of course, or perhaps you, if you don't box, <laughs> the thought of going into a ring would scare the living daylights out of me. But for somebody who's familiar with that, and that's habitual in terms of every day they potentially getting hit, or, or throwing punches and conditioning themselves to do that. It's just their sport. Yeah, I, I, I think that's incredible because I, I look at it and obviously you listen to people like Mike Tyson and it, there's a there's a well-known quote with him where he kind of discusses that at the start of the ring walk, he'd be a petrified little boy and then by the time he gets into the ring, he's a lion and all that type of stuff. Which, um, But I think it is, it's fascinating to hear that they almost revert back just to their training and it isn't like oh i'm going to think about what the catastrophic consequence at the end of this could be i'm going to think about actually my job here my training here is to outbox this opponent and to win this yeah so the, the, yeah so the coach will be pre preparing them tactically about okay how are you going to overcome the person's strengths what are they likely to how are they likely to compete against you what's their style going to be so if they're a southpaw how are you going to counter that 
what would be your combinations in terms of how will you try and use the ring so it's you know it's again it's about process it's it's yes i'm throwing punches but I, as i say i never got the the sense with any boxer that they were trying to injure somebody it's it's i'm trying to score points i'm trying to score points on my opponent i'm trying to if i can knock them down but that's that's what i'm conditioned to do so um you know your example there of, of, of tyson saying i'm you know i'm fearful and then i'm well, i'm not but, but you can say that in lots of sports where people go out for big events and actually they can be um nervous anticipated excited before they go out and then um i mean the research from years ago would be you know um somatic anxiety increases massively when you get to the competition site and then as soon as you start it decreases because you're involved in the you're involved in the competition um so I, yeah i think my example my experience across those main sports i've worked in is that people that's what practice is for you you, you prepare for you prepare for the event psychologically physically tactically technically and and when you go in there you're trying to execute all of those things to get the best out of yourself that you can i think i think that's amazing i, thought, I think that i think that motorsports just briefly on motorsport because it came into my mind that's one that's always really intrigued in in motorsport particularly at the top end you can't practice what you do you know testing is very because of the expense of it and limitations testing is very very rare so you can't actually go and physically practice your skills you, and there's to my mind i can't think of any other sports where you can't do that so to, to me motorsport has always been very much about psychological preparation in terms of visualizing or imagery in terms of familiarizing myself with the task ahead of me as much as i can do in my mind because actually the the chances to physically practice it are so rare yes there's simulators but if you talk to drivers they'll say yeah simulators are fine to a degree but they're still not the real thing i guess it's not you haven't got that outcome either have you that like if you look at f1 at the top level you make one mistake going a corner look at hamilton um azerbaijan what granted it was one where he flipped the switch he shouldn't have done but one mistake where you turn in too early or you break too late your front wing ties off race ruins yeah i mean but you know more in, more so is in qualifying where you know we're talking about hundreds of seconds which could determine then the race outcome because you, you can see in certain formulas where overtaking is quite difficult and there's races within races so qualifying becomes even more important where the slightest mistake can mean you're down the grid um so i've always thought that motorsport is is a really interesting one in terms of like i said is mental practice becomes of greater importance because you can't physically practice in the way that other sports can so you know in terms of football we can go and practice whenever we want we can go and practice penalty taking for hours on hours in motorsport you can't do that and i guess this comes back to for you what we've mentioned previously which is that grounding for the driver or for for the boxer whoever it is of actually 
I'm, you know, I'm going to take some deep breaths or I'm going to, you know, put my gloves on and do this in order to really focus myself. And then I'm just going to kind of get into that state where I know I can perform and let my training or let my experience or my simulator or whatever that is now come to fruition. I'm not going to be on edge and crash into a barrier or whatever it is. And there's, there's certain sports like motorsport as well. Is I think, you know, in terms of, I think in terms of something like football, rugby is you can try you can try harder you can physically try harder in in sports like golf and motorsport if you try to physically try harder often you underperform yeah. and that's try to hit the ball harder you end up hitting the floor or smash it in the trees more yeah, often you, you 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 can't you can't put your more energy into something you actually underperform more if you put more into something um and that's a, a tension i think in terms of golf and motorsport i've noticed a lot and, and talked to people about is that you want to try harder but actually trying harder doesn't help yeah it's fascinating it's a fascinating principle in terms of it's not the physical thing of doing it it's the you know, you know, you need almost need to press a reset button and go right. What what have I trained for? What what do I do? I think one thing that's come across a lot in this conversation is what what am I good at? What what are my self awareness that I'm good at? What's the thing that if I'm going to win today is going to allow, or if I'm going to perform today and hopefully win, what's going to allow me to perform? And in a golf context, that might be identifying i can't hit the ball as far but i know i can hit it straight so i'm just going to really focus on you know hitting the ball straight and making sure i hit my fairways and then get onto the greens as i should in a in a f1 context it might be that you know going around corners in certain areas of the track that that's my strength is so i know you know in in when I'm going around that section of the track, that's where I'm going to be able to gain some time back, etc. I think I think it's really fascinating that ultimately that's what it comes down to in that performance of trying to really focus on what your super strengths are and perform in that area, and then hopefully you get the outcome that you want. Yeah, I think there's there's like I say there's and you you seem to be aware of that, Michael. There's more research on sort of a strengths based approach. Um, I guess traditionally sports site would have been a more um trying to um work on weaknesses uh but i think um more prominent now is that kind of strengths based approach is, is is what am i yeah you're right what am i good at and how can i utilize those strengths in competition remember to use them uh, as as a, a, a you know as playing you know again it's cliched isn't it is play my own game um, as opposed to or race my own race, as opposed to getting sucked into what the opponent wants me to do or what I feel the occasion demands. You know, there's a, I don't know where that where that that statement came from. I think I've heard it first of all Gary Neville talking about under Ferguson. It was play the game, not the occasion. Um, and I've you know I've worked with a lot of players over the years, and where that's really been key is that just because you're playing in a big event or a final or something that you don't need to do anything special. You don't need to do something that you don't normally do. You just need to do what you normally do and what you've trained to do. And of course that is what the best people do. Um, but, the, but you know, the, the best also 
and there's but the best also do fail an awful lot as well we just don't remember those i like it i like it the best phrase i've had is kind of just having amnesia once something's gone so if you've done it well it's over with if you've done it poorly it's over with they liken it in american football they say you need to have amnesia after every throw just kind of forget about it and focus on the next yeah. action which for me i think is a really lovely phrase on if you can do that you're not handcuffed or you're not you know over the moon with your previous action you're purely focusing on that next play that next action that next decision which is all you can really focus and you know that's all you can really affect yeah. at that time yeah i remember working with a, just something again um, a memory that came to mind is a i worked with a trampolinist who went to her first olympics and and didn't perform well in one of the routines and was kind of crestfallen and i remember when they came back to the uk she hadn't watched back the performance and i was the first person she sat with to go through it and in her mind she'd built it up that this had been this terrible performance and actually when she watched it back there was one aspect of it you know one aspect of it where she'd made an error um you know and so yeah the ability the ability to to accept mistakes mistakes if that's the kind uh, in in the moment and refocus i think is um is a hallmark of great players in 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 whichever sport you're talking about perfect listen last question for me and it might be something that's quite challenging for you but who is the best um or the best or the person you've learned most from in terms of practitioner coach or athlete um and why is that the case oh crikey that's a hard question um there would be so many um there would be one particular i, I could name a lot of people across different sports and coaches because i think people have taught me an awful lot of a lot of things um but one particular individual um was uh an overseas test batsman in cricket who'd um broken many domestic records in his own country and his introduction to test cricket hadn't gone well he kept being selected kept being dropped and what he referred to was lots of scars of earlier experiences in playing test cricket. And I remember doing a lot of work with him about the environment and and how it wasn't conducive to him getting the best out of himself and having to go getting recalled and having to go back into that environment and somehow succeed in an environment that was not conducive to him get being as good as he could be and i just thought the resilience he showed and it did show me that these words is i can't remember exact words but it was almost like how to get the best out of yourself in a in an environment that you don't like 
and I think sometimes in professional sport is people are having to perform in environments that aren't conducive to them getting the best out of themselves and through their strength of mind they do um and I've seen that you know I, I, I've seen that a lot in different sportsmen and you know part of my approach sometimes is using a sort of a storytelling narrative approach to give messages to people um and I know I've recounted that story to people when they've been in environments or working with coaches or situations which are shit, actually and not helpful to them but they've still got to perform and it's a, it's a, the acknowledgement of well, I, what things can I influence what things can't I influence and still having the strength of mind to go in and control what I can control and stick to my process even though things are not helpful to me I think that one that one stands out Michael yeah I, th- I think that's a great that's a great one to finish on I think definitely food for thought of you know practitioners or, or athletes in terms of environment might not always be the best but can control what you can control and try and perform to the best that you can and you know what will be will be and hopefully you, you do well out the other end of it um but listen Brian it's easy, it's, it, it's easy to say you know that this and this isn't going to work and there's all these reasons for it not to work and that's true but sometimes you still have to no that's incredible well listen brian really appreciate your time and a great conversation and definitely loads of food for thought and hopefully catch up with you again soon thanks michael Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.